0: We've been in the loop travel narrative, and where we are is the conflict with the Pharisees over money. You'll remember that you wound up with the parable of the rich fool, the guy that built too many barns. So what we have this time is we'll start with the parable over uh, God and mammon, which I sort of started last time, and I'll get a run at it better this time. And I mentioned last time that most people treat the parable of God and mammon as an extension of the unjust steward. Bailey divides them up and says that from nine on is a conflict with the Pharisees over money, and before that, the unjust steward is really a commentary on the kingdom. So I'm in 16.9. Luke, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And we talked about that briefly last time. So what is the thing that fails? The unrighteous mammon. And the friends that you make, they may receive you into eternal tents. Well, who can receive you into an eternal tent? God or the angels? depending on what your angelology is. So the friends that you make who will receive you have to be celestial beings, right? You see the difficulty here? So what you have is make friends of somebody using unrighteous mammon so that when the unrighteous mammon fails, those friends that you made can receive you into eternal tents. So these friends, whoever they are, have the ability to receive you into an eternal tent. I would suggest that an eternal tent is the world to come. Or if you're a Sunday Christian, heaven. So, now let's do the friends first. Depending on your angelology, it could be angels. In other words, the idea that angels are the ones who actually receive you when you die. There are. Uh, strains of Judaism and Christianity that believe that and I don't have any problem with that by the way I'm not saying this as if I think it's hokey I don't have a problem with this at all the idea that when you die you get received or escorted by angels that doesn't bother me don't know if it's true but the idea that it might be doesn't bother me at all or again if you're not one who believes in angels then it would be God or Yeshua somebody without skin on is going to receive you into an eternal tent. Could the people receiving you into tents be friends that have died before you died with whom you made friends with your unrighteous mammon? And I find that somewhat less persuasive, although, again, there's lots of branches of Christianity. And not only that, most Eastern religions believe that your ancestors who have gone before you are watching over you. I don't happen to believe that, but it's not a stupid idea remember we have the story of lazarus and the rich man and so you have then the idea of abraham the patriarchs receiving those who die. so unrighteous mammon what is unrighteous mammon let's go there next maybe unrighteous is not the concept we're dealing with here unrighteous has the connotation of bad behavior i will suggest maybe profane Is a better term. And profane, most of you know, doesn't mean what most of us have grown up thinking that it means, which is something dirty. Profane simply means common as opposed to holy. So things that are set aside holy are kadosh. Everything else is profane, which is to say, common. That doesn't mean it's bad. You can make money, and the money that you make would be common money. Except that part of it that you dedicate to God for his purposes, which then becomes holy money. Simply by being dedicated to God's purposes. So the idea that things of this world are unrighteous, I don't think is right. And understand the word in the scripture says unrighteous. So I'm sort of putting my own genealogy on this. So what I'm suggesting that this may mean, we're still not real sure who they are. We've got the patriarchs, which is a pretty good answer. We've got angels, which could be a good answer. And we've got God himself, which could be a good answer. So making friends for yourself through the use of unrighteous mammon, I will suggest, is talking about how do you use the resources that you are provided in this world. And by using the resources that you are given in ways that are pleasing to God, you are making friends in that case... Of someone who is able to receive you into an eternal tent now the poem goes on so now what he's talking about is if we buy my assertion that in the previous mammon and God part of it he's talking about using the resources you're given in this world for purposes that are pleasing to God now he's talking about your faithfulness with that stuff so verse 10 One who is faithful in a very little also is faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That, by the way, is a marshal. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And let me read it in King Jimmy. I think that may be a better translation so in king jimmy he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who then will commit to you your trust the true and in king jimmy riches is italicized and if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's who shall give you that which is your own The one who is unfaithful in little is also unfaithful in much. So regardless of whether you have little or much, whether you're faithful or unfaithful applies to either situation. Remember, Paul says that I've learned to be poor and I've learned to be rich. And so the idea here is whatever you do with a little, you will also be doing with much. Yeshua is saying here is however you behave in the small stuff, you will also behave in the big stuff. That also applies to politics. How many times have we heard the Republicans say we'll get them on the next fight, but we're going to cave on this one? Why would you ever believe them? Because in little things they are unfaithful. What makes you think they're suddenly going to be faithful in big things? So what he's then saying is if in the unrighteous mammon you are not faithful, who will entrust you with the truth? And again, King Jimmy has true riches, but the richest part is a translator's addition. And I don't know whether I like riches or not. I, I, I kind of like truth. So what he's saying here is that the unrighteous mammon, which I have asserted is worldly wealth, is in fact a test. And what God wants to see is what are you going to do with the stuff that he gives you? And if you prove yourself righteous, or faithful with the small stuff he gives you, then he knows he can trust you with the big stuff. And I don't know whether you've heard it, but I've heard it. Well, when I get enough money, I'll start tithing. And the point is not, what are you going to do when you get much? What are you doing with the little you now have? That's why God works in percentages. He doesn't say the tithe is $10,000 because there are lots of people who don't have $10,000. What he says is 10% and if you are faithful in the little that you have he then knows he can trust you with more so the one who is unfaithful in little will also be unfaithful in much and if an unrighteous man and you are not faithful who will trust you with the truth and if in what is another's you are not faithful who will give you what is yours the implication there is who does the wealth that you get in this world belong to so what he's saying is if you're not in what belongs to somebody else who's going to give you what's yours first off everything that you are in possession of in this world is in fact an investment in you by God so talents money everything God has invested in you x amount of stuff combination of talent money and all that kind of stuff so god's invested that in you but who does it belong to god and so if you are unfaithful in what he has invested in you something that belongs to the other then why would anybody give you something that is going to be your own you have to use your talents to get a living and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that but most people don't spend 24 7 earning a living You have other time and other resources that are available to you. And so the question is, are you tithing those also? The last one we have is, what is yours who will give you? So what is yours? What it seems to be saying is there comes a time and a place where the stuff that you get, instead of being leased to you from God, now becomes yours, never to be taken away. What it's saying is, God invests in you. He gives you time, he gives you abilities, he gives you money, and so forth. If your understanding is, I am a steward of the things that God has given me, certainly I use them for my own sustainment. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feeding you and feeding your family and putting gas in your car and all that kind of stuff. That's not unrighteous at all. But everybody has more bandwidth than what you need to earn a living. So the question then is, are you taking these things that God has invested in you, and are you turning them around and using them for his kingdom, giving them away as charity, going into a grocery store and starting to talk to people about God? I mean, you do that stuff. I know you do. So what you're doing is you're using the talents that God gave you for the furtherances of his purposes as you understand them. If you do that and you are faithful in the stuff he gives you, what it's saying then is... He will trust you then with something that is going to be your own. At the end of whatever the end is, he looks at how you have taken his investment and how you have prospered his investment. And then he turns around, and if you were faithful in what he gave you, then he gives you something that is yours and can't be taken away. As opposed to something that's just an investment. You know, I'm not worth a flip as a salesman. Larry's a salesman, I'm not. I'm a decent teacher. For me to go out and try and be a salesman would be a misuse of the talents that God's given me. And one of the things that we tend to do is look at each other and compare to other people. And gee, I get really jealous because I'm not the salesman Larry is. And that's a waste of bandwidth because the things he does as he goes about his tortilla route is he talks to people about God. And they ask him questions, and he gives them answers, and all sorts of stuff. And that's woven into his day. So it isn't as if he has set aside, all right, for the next two hours, I'm going to do God's. No, it's just woven through his day. And that's very appropriate. For me, I have to sit down here for an hour or two hours and do something focused. But that isn't the case for everybody, because your talents are all different. And if there was more than one of me, then, you know, God wouldn't need one of us. Same with Larry. I mean, if they're if I were just like Larry, then one of us is redundant. So anyway, have I got mammon and truth sorted out? Will we okay there now, finally? Have I stumbled around enough that you all understand that? So now we're coming back to mammon and God. So then we have no servant can serve two masters, either the one he hates and the other he loves, or the one he is devoted to and the other he despises. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's, again, mashalim. So... What's the difference between love and hate and devotion and despising? One can assume that God is not just repeating himself. Okay, so we have masters, two masters. We have a potential master of God and we have a potential master of the things of this world. So there's two masters involved. And then love and hate compared to devotion and despising. The biblical love and hate doesn't necessarily mean quite what it means to us. It it means prefers and discards or rejects. I will suggest to you that one is emotional and the other one is behavioral. So you can love God but not be devoted to him, not do anything for him. And similarly, you can hate the devil or mammon but not despise it, which is to say not reject it. What I'm suggesting to you is you've got two different concepts there. One having to do with emotion or thought, the other having to do with action. Love and hate would be an emotional axis. The other one would be a behavioral axis. So if I love you, then in order to show that love, I would have to devote time to you. And if I hate you, I would have to despise you, which is to say, shove you away. So now we come down to verse 14. I'm in Luke 16, 14. And the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So what's become clear here is that the audience here is the Pharisees. The whole subject here is conflict with the Pharisees over money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them the pharisees you are those who justify yourselves before men but god knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god the law and the prophets were until john since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void let's go back now to verse 15 again and i'm quoting yeshua here you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, true wealth and unrighteous men. And what he's saying is the stuff that you value because the thing that you love is money is in fact an abomination to God. Because remember, the Pharisees here are reacting to this business about God and man. Verse 14 is the Pharisees reacting to what he has just said about God and manna. So now in that same context, he's saying, you guys are welded to the things of this world. And that's why I'm offending you. So he's taking a stripe off of the Pharisees. And he's saying, God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And again, he's talking in context here. You guys are walking around. You're desiring the best seats in the synagogue. You're fasting in public so everybody can see you. You're giving your tithes with great show. And everybody is clapping for, oh, look at him. And what Yeshua is saying, I see your heart. And what you're doing is dirty diapers. Because you are, in fact, not caring for the fatherless, the widow, and the soldier. You are oppressing people. All of this other stuff, which is also commanded, is worthless to me when in the really important stuff is how do you treat other people? You're blowing it. That's the message. Not that going to church, praying, all that kind of stuff is a stinking it's, it's nonsense. That's not what he's saying at all. So the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void so first off the law and the prophets were until john remember when i was talking about the gospel three or four weeks ago or actually probably last month now and i said reading scripture that yeshua started proclaiming the gospel immediately at the beginning of all the gospels in other words It wasn't after his crucifixion that the gospel was proclaimed. He was proclaiming the gospel when he was walking around for three years. And what I suggested to you is two things. The gospel is the Torah. And the gospel is also that God periodically reaches in and takes his people out of empire. And so Yeshua walking around as the Messiah was saying, the time is here for God to reach in and take you out of empire. And, of course, they wouldn't have it. But the gospel he was preaching is the thing that you have been waiting for is here. And the prophets were until John. John was the last of the prophets. And if you take me for who I am, then you're going to do another exodus. But you wouldn't. In fact, you killed him. And so now we're another 2,000 years waiting for the next exodus. 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What's he talking about there in context? Remember he says in another context, we've read it here and I just don't remember where it is right off the top. You Pharisees tithe of cumin and mint and you should be loving your neighbor as yourself while not neglecting the other stuff. In other words, the fact that you're doing all this meticulous tithing and all this very meticulous following of the law is fine but the other part of that is love god love your neighbor and you're not doing that part so you need to love god love your neighbor while you do not neglect the tithing of so forth in fact let's find that i'm in luke 11:42. but woe to you pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of god these you ought to have done Without neglecting the others. So, what he's saying is the important thing is love God, love your neighbor, do justice. You're not doing that, but you're doing the small meticulous stuff just fine. What you need to do is do justice and love your neighbor without neglecting the meticulous stuff. That's what it says. Let me read it again now. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So he's not saying that you're wrong tithing mint and rue. You should do that. It's commanded. But doing that doesn't compensate for neglecting loving God and loving your neighbor. So now, the same thing is sort of being said here in Luke 16, where, I'll pick it up in verse 15, And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men but god knows your heart for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god the law and the prophets were until john since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void so what he's saying is all of these things in the law are absolutely binding you do them all But you don't justify yourself before men. What you do is you justify yourself before God. One of the things to keep in mind is most people are not intentionally wicked. I mean, certainly there are people who are. But most people don't start the day with saying, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to commit some wickedness here. What you do is you justify your attitudes. And you treat people the way you treat them. And in your mind, you are justified. One of the things that happened on Shabbat, and I don't remember who said it, you see some guy with a cardboard sign at the interchange, and if you are inclined not to give to him, what you do in your mind is, well, he's probably just going to spend it on drugs or alcohol, and, you know, he's got this worn-out sign, and he's clearly a professional beggar, and, and he's young and healthy, and he should get a job. And what you do is you start justifying your behavior, and that's what the Pharisees are doing. They think that they have got really good reasons for doing all the stuff that they're doing. And oh, by the way, we are also being meticulous in tithing our mint and rue. And the fact that we're oppressing these folks, they need to be oppressed because of X, Y, or Z. What happens is because we all do that, periodically God sends a prophet in and he grabs him by the stacking swivel and he picks them up and says, I'm gonna talk and you're gonna listen. And oh, by the way, all of this stuff that you have justified in your own minds thinking that you are righteous, I am looking at it, and I don't find it righteous. And it takes a prophet to come in and tell you that, because mostly people can't figure it out themselves. So when a society becomes corrupt, God sends a prophet into it, and he says, all this stuff that you think you're doing and you look so righteous, hey, dirty diaper time, because you're really neglecting the things that are important to me, which is how you treat your fellow and how you love me. You've all read the dialogues that the Sanhedrin had about deciding to crucify Yeshua. Oh, man, if this guy gets loose, we're going to be up to our hips in Romans, and we're going to lose everything. And, man, we need to get rid of this guy because public safety. So in their minds, they were not saying, well, this is the Son of God. Let's go ahead and kill him because we want to be unrighteous. No, nobody said that. And I will suggest nobody thought that because we all do it. We all are really good at justifying the thing that we really want to do, whatever that is. And there's a really good reason why I'm doing this. Even though you, looking at me from the outside, can say, Ugh, that's really stinky. Oh, but I had a good reason. And so do these guys. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter next time, which is going to be divorce and then the rich man and Lazarus.